We are in Titus chapter 1, looking at verses 5 through 9. Go blue. (laughs) If you're new with us, we, this is part 7, so you've missed a lot, but you can... uh, you can, you can pick it back up on the internet, on our website. There's a lot there. And I'm simply going to, for the most part, pick up where we left off and just continue. And we're not done either. We'll be back again. A lot of our folks, I think, are missing today, too. It's, I think some type of um, outing, boys outing and such. So they'll have to pick, pick up this part, uh, specifically men and boys. So wives, if you're here, make sure your husband listens to this when he gets back. Tell him how much he needs it. Uh, <laughs> he always appreciates that. <laughs> Let me read the text and then uh, get back into, get my mindset right. All right, beginning in verse 5, chapter 1. This is why I left you in, so, okay, hold on. So Paul's writing to Titus. Paul and Titus were on the island of Crete for a period of time, ministering there. Paul had to leave. He left Titus, his faithful a minister in the gospel work there on the island and left him behind to basically attend to these fledgling churches or communities of believers that existed there on this very large island in the Mediterranean. And so he gave him, he's writing now, he's already given him instruction, but now this verifies the instruction that he has given to him so that he can then execute on the matters that Paul had left for him to do. And He needs to, what we're looking at primarily here is he needs to appoint elders to these fledgling communities of believers so that they would care for uh, the sheep, uh, watch over them and help them and guide them and shepherd them. And they definitely need it because there's a presence of, as were many other places, false teachers that are disturbing the church and creating problems. And so they need men there that can care for these sheep, make sure they're not uh, led astray or harmed Uh, through this false teaching. So that's what we're focusing on primarily here. And so one of Titus's responsibilities is to go and and, uh, appoint men, elders, leaders, shepherds, pastors, overseers to these local communities of believers. In doing that, he's given them a criteria. This is what should be true, has to be true of these men in order for them to qualify as those who would shepherd God's precious people. That's what we've been doing. That's basically what we're doing. So let's read it. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then here's the criteria. If anyone is above reproach uh, for the elders, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, so that's, we've been slowly making our way through here. And as I've said every time, the criteria that is used for choosing elders Uh, that continues to be used. We find a parallel passage in Timothy as well concerning the same matter, also written by Paul to Timothy concerning qualifications for elders. 
But uh, the description here that we see, this criteria, is more or less a description of a spiritually mature, strong, fit Christian, a, a Christ-like Christian, uh, one who has a measure of maturity in Christ-likeness, okay? Which is something, which is something every uh, disciple of Christ should be striving to be. Are there any disciples of Christ in here? Yeah, so if you're a Christian, that is what you are. You are a follower, a learner of Christ. In our study, our recent, uh, or the current study that we're in, the growth group study, called Making Disciples, this week, I really appreciated this section here. It talks about the first disciples and that the goal was for them, not, and it is for us as well, not only to know what their teacher knew, but also to be like their teacher and walk in his ways. They weren't learning a subject, they were learning a person. I think that's so good. They weren't learning a subject, they were learning a person. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, a learner of him, of him. They go on to say, if we can put it like that, his knowledge, his wisdom, his whole way of life. Being a learner of Jesus necessarily involves learning truth and content conveyed in words, but it must also involve the learning of a new way of being and living, and that is to be and live as Christ, as Jesus Christ. We are to be conformed to his likeness, to his image. We are to be like him. So... uh, that is what this really is a picture of, a picture of Christ-likeness, a, a strong degree of Christ-likeness, and that's what we're all called to do. So as we, as we make our way through this passage, I've been saying it's not only for elders, like, okay, this is the criteria for elders. It is certainly for them, and they must meet these qualifications, but it is also something that every follower of Christ, learner of Christ, Christian, should take and learn from and conform their life to if they're not, to whatever degree they're not. So I've been trying to make application to you as we go and really thinking on those things. And um, I was reading one sermon on this section, and the pastor noted that he took a quote from Charles Spurgeon. How many of you are familiar with Charles Spurgeon? So if not familiar, get familiar. I would encourage you to get familiar, to look him up, Charles Spurgeon, get any book that you can get on him and, and read his works. But uh, a brilliant man and brilliant preacher and uh, just wonderful to learn from. But he had in this something called Lectures to My Students where he was uh, instructing those who desire to be in ministry, uh, to care for the church of God, to pastor, to be elders, and so on and so forth. He wrote this, and it goes along with this section. He says, For some work we choose none but the strong, And when God calls us, remember he's speaking to his students, when God calls us to ministerial labor, we should endeavor to get grace that we may be strengthened into fitness for our position and not be mere novices carried away by the temptations of Satan to the injury of the church and our own ruin. To us, self-denial, self-forgetfulness, Patience, perseverance, long-suffering must be everyday virtues. And who is sufficient for these things? And then he says, we had need live very near to God. 
if we would approve ourselves in our vocation. So I would say that is good words to those looking to become uh, elders or ministers in, in God's church, but certainly those are good words to every follower of Jesus Christ. We need, to, we need God's help. We need God's grace. We need to live near, very close to our God so that we will not be novices and carried away by the temptations of Satan to the injury of, yes, even our church and certainly to our own ruin, to the injury of our families, to our marriages. We need to grow in Christ, all of us. And in order to do that, we're going to need to stay very near to God. So, where do we leave off? The final vice in verse 7 is where we left off. So we'll just pick up uh, right there. Paul says, concerning the one who would care for, watch over, serve, and love God's precious people gathered together, the local church, Paul says he must not be greedy for gain. Greedy for gain. Uh, what is that supposed to mean exactly? Now, I'm just, you know, if just a reading of that, greedy for gain, what might you think, what does it sound like it means? What do you think? It's okay. Okay, love of money, loves money. Power, status, pride, got all kinds of answers. Ooh. All right. Okay. All right. So let's look at it now. We'll break it down. We'll look at it a little bit closer and, and uh, all good, good stuff. You know, just looking at it, greedy for gain, what might that mean? Well, greedy for gain is, it's, it's just one Greek word. Greedy for gain. That's how it's being translated in the ESV. It's also translated that way in the NET. The NIV 84, these are different translations of the English Bible. Uh, the NIV 84 translates it, not pursuing dishonest gain. The uh, Holman, the New King James, they translate it, not greedy for money. A more literal translation, and I actually prefer it in this case. The ESV is a literal translation too, but a more, in this case, a more literal translation, in other words, closer to what the word actually means, and then bring it into the English, is found in the New American Standard Bible. Not fond of sordid gain. Not fond of sordid gain. This man cannot be fond of sordid gain. What? Okay, sordid. Again, not a word we probably use regularly, but sordid means it involves dishonorable actions and motives. Dishonorable actions and motives. The underlying Greek word, if you look it up in a Greek dictionary, a definition that you will find is this, or basically the definition you will find is this, given to filthy lucre, not liquor, that's the other one, not given to drunkenness. That's another, can't be that either. No, filthy lucre, also probably a word that we don't regularly lose, cannot be given to filthy lucre. That's literally uh, what the word would mean, the Greek word. 
Lucre is money, especially when regarded as sordid, there's the word again, or distasteful or gained in a dishonorable way. Gained in a dishonorable way. So keep that little phrasing in your head. So we've got money gained in a dishonorable way, sorted. So I like not fond of sorted gain. It's, involved, it's, it's gaining and gaining dishonorably with dishonorable actions and motives. And specifically, the word has uh, relation to money of sorts. So what exactly is Paul getting at here? Well, some of you talked about love of money. There were several other things thrown out there, power and all of that. But what is Paul getting at specifically? And we can make, I'm going to make some application, further application beyond money as well. But um, in his book, Biblical Eldership, Strzok points out that the Greek word that's used here in Titus is very similar in meaning to the one used in the other section that lays out the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3.3. There, Paul, it's not the exact word, but it is very similar. And there, it's translated in 1 Timothy 3.3, the word that's used there, not a lover of money, okay, which some of you said, not a lover of money. Now, that's more clear, probably. I don't do I need to ask you what that means? No, that's fairly clear. Uh, greedy for gain is kind of, okay, what exactly are we talking about? Or even fond of sordid gain. We still got to get at that, but not a lover of money. So it is closely related to this word, and, and as we'll see, uh, connected to it, and helps our understanding of what Paul is saying in Titus 1.7. The idea is there, not a lover of money for sure. And we know that's a problem, Right? We're not to love money. We're not to be a lover of money. Is that only for elders? Huh? It's like, it's okay if, you know, I can love money, just the elders can't, you know? Because, you know, that's God's money that they're dealing with, and if they're lovers of money, as if you're not dealing with God's money yourself. Hello. You know what I mean? Do you realize your, the money you have is not yours? you know that? Do you know that? Yeah, Exactly. So you too are not to be a lover of money, all right? In fact, later on in Timothy, so in 1 Timothy 3, he is laying out, just like in Titus, the qualifications for elders, Paul is. But later on in 1 Timothy in chapter 6, he says this, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content, or at least we're supposed to be. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, away from their Christianity, and pierced themselves with many pangs. Love of money. Love of money. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Who said that? You see that connection? Be content with what you have 
And then what does he talk about? He doesn't even talk about food and clothing. He talks about what you have, Christian. Huh? Jesus, who will never leave you nor forsake you, and will see to it that he will supply what you need. The person who's not content says, I need more. I need more. What I have is not enough. That's a lack of contentment. Christian, if you have Christ, you have enough. You have enough. I would say you have more than enough. The person who says, I don't have enough, especially the Christian of all people. I mean, certainly the non-Christian should say he doesn't have enough. He doesn't. He won't until he has Christ. But Christian, you have Christ. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will bring you home into your eternal kingdom, into the eternal kingdom of God. He will get you there, and he will care for you along the way. You have enough if you have Christ. But the person that says, I need more, what I have is not enough, that person will find that it will never be enough. It will never be enough, right? It will never be enough. I heard it said that someone asked a very wealthy man, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little more. It's never enough. The one who doesn't have Christ is not content in knowing and having a relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, it does say keep your life free from the love of money, yeah? In Hebrews, right? As we're just looking at this, because it's a similar word, the love of money, it helps us understand what Paul means when the man must not be fond of sordid gain or greedy for gain, but it says keep your life free from not money, but the love of money, yeah? The love of money. Just always remember that. Money is not evil. But the love of money is sinful. And I would just say this, as we think about this, and just think about as we're thinking through, we'll get to it, sorted, sorted gain, greedy for gain, fond of sorted gain, pursuing sorted gain, um, and love of money and how they're very closely related. But when we think about that, I don't think it's that people love money, per se, or the coin, or the currency, per se, right? I mean, is that, is that what we're being warned not to do? Now listen, I know how you like to bring all, get all those dollar bills and lay them in your bed next to you and roll around on them because you love money. You love touching it. And, I mean, come on. It's not, it's not, the, mon- right, it's not the money itself, And I think it's important because we just kind of, hey, you shouldn't love money. There's something deeper there, though, right? It's not the currency that you love. That's not what you're, you're not, we're not tempted or drawn away to to fall in love with a dollar bill or a hundred dollar bill for that matter, but rather it's what money buys or gets us that we find our hearts drawn towards and falling in love with, and it takes an improper place in our life, right? So, power. Power. Money helps one obtain power. And so, power is, in one sense, can be a longing to control people or situations. And so, What's really going on in that person's heart, why they are pursuing money, 
having their heart drawn towards more money is because they're seeking power. And they're seeking power because they long to control people or situations. So that's actually the issue that needs to be repented of. Or status. One is in love with money when they have a longing, can be in love with money, when they have a longing to look important or successful to others. Right? That's what draws their heart towards getting more, getting more. Because the more they get, the more they're able then to buy. And they want to buy because they're looking to look good in front of everyone else. You know, like the idea of keeping up with the Joneses. Well, that's, that is what needs to be repented of. Right? Just You have to draw down a little bit deeper than hey, you shouldn't love money. Yes, but why are you loving money? Why, are you, why do you have a love affair with money? Why are you letting it raise to the level of importance that it should not have in your life? Money is important. You need money to buy food and pay the rent. But when money rises to a level that it should not have in your life of greatest importance that you're pursuing it and even making compromises in your life in order to get it, you need to ask, why am I doing it? Why am I doing it? Why am I pursuing money like that? Why is it so important to me? And it's going to be these other reasons, power, status, could even be peace and security, which is misplaced hope. In other words, you believe if you have more money, then you'll finally feel secure or have a peace about you, right? But that's false because money as the scriptures say, grows wings when you least expect it and flies away. Or the thief comes in and steals. Or your things that you bought begin to rust and break. Or the stock market crashes hard. Right? There's no real peace or security in money. So you have placed your hope in the wrong place. And you need to repent of that and place it in the one who doesn't crash, who can withstand any storm, the one who can truly give you true peace, the one who gives eternal security, Christ. Are you with me? So as we think through these things, you need to think deeper instead of just sometimes we just kind of throw out, hey, it's not right to, to be in love with money. Of course it's not right, but... Think in your own heart. Maybe you might even be someone who's loving money because you are pursuing it. And why are you pursuing it? You need to ask yourself these questions. Where have I gone off course? But back to the specific meaning of the word in Titus. The Greek words in Titus and in Timothy are similar in meaning and certainly are related. But they are not exactly the same. They are not exactly the same. Otherwise, you would see the same translation in Titus. It would say, love of money. They're not exactly the same. Related, but not exactly the same. A form of the Greek word used in Paul's letter to Titus, which I think a good literal translation is the New American Standard Bible, fond of sordid gain. So gain involving dishonorable actions and motives. A form of that word is also found in Peter 
in his exhortation to elders, which we've covered before. I've gone through this letter with you. So let me take you there real quick. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2. There, the apostle Peter writes to elders, so I exhort the elders among you, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, and here it is, not for shameful gain. Same Greek word used in Titus, just a different form. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Shameful gain. I want you to remember that. Shameful gain. Sordid gain. Fond of sordid gain. Gaining in a dishonorable way. There's something dishonorable about the gain. There's something dishonorable. There's something shameful about it, about the gain. And the gain is primarily, specifically related to in money. Okay, something dishonorable about the gain. So, as I explained to you when we were in Peter, this does not, so he's warning elders, don't, don't let this be you, that you are shepherding the flock of God for shameful gain. No, shepherd the flock of God, but not for shameful gain, but eagerly, okay? You with me? Shameful, dishonorable. So this doesn't mean that an elder of a church can't be paid or compensated for his labor. I am a paid elder. I am a paid elder, which allows me to give more of my time, my entire week, to the task of shepherding, of preparing sermons, of preaching, of caring for the church of God. Not all of our elders are paid elders. Actually, I'm the only one. He's not an elder, but he's also paid. He's like my right-hand guy and helps me and facilitates many things and makes things happen here. But I'm a paid elder, okay? Not all elders are paid. But it is not wrong for elders to be paid, if that's possible. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, you can write that down and, and look at that passage. That would be one passage that would address that matter. They are paid so that they are relieved from having to do another job in order to feed themselves, okay? So that they can give themselves fully to the work of the ministry and caring for the church. But an elder shouldn't be pursuing or doing pastoral ministry simply or only for material gain or money. That's what would make it shameful, or sordid, or dishonorable. In other words, his primary motive, ambition, and desire should be to serve his Lord by serving God's people as their pastor or elder. That should be his primary motive, ambition. As one writer puts it concerning 1 Peter, he says, eagerness to serve should precede any consideration of personal profit. Okay? Eagerness to serve should precede any consideration of personal profit. So it would be really weird if you had, like often happens in the business world, where a CEO just moves from one corporation to another corporation because they're offering him more money. It would be a little strange if you had a pastor, and by the way, it happens, doing exactly the same thing. In other words, he gets a call, they call him up, you know, some headhunter, and they're like, yo, pastor, listen, we've got a great offer for you. I know you've been serving there, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years, I know, but listen, how much they paying you? We can double it. Can you imagine? 
And although this is a little exaggerated, things like this do happen. And then the pastor says, okay, and he just bails because the other church is offering him more. That would be sordid gain. So Strzok, in his book, Biblical Eldership, as I've already mentioned, says this, both Paul and Peter, as we see in Titus and we just saw in Peter, would condemn then what we would call being in it for the money. Being in it for the money. Do you understand that idea? That's the, I think that's the idea of the word. In other words, love of money does relate to this, but specifically, more specifically, that word that's used in Titus is they're in it, they're doing it for the money, and it's because they're pursuing, they love money above everything else. Interesting enough, in 1 Peter 5, he's, he's already writing, right, to elders in 1 Peter 5, and he's warning them, hey, don't do what you do for shameful gain, which implies that, because in Titus, it is a requirement. Listen, if the guy is fond of sordid gain, he can't be an elder. So you can't come in being fond of sordid gain. If that shows up in that man's life, in other words, he's all about the money, he does what he does for the money, if that shows up, do not put him over the people of God. But in this case, Peter's writing to elders, which means that it could even be a potential problem later on. In other words, maybe the man started off well, but then he's like, you know what, I don't even care anymore. I'll stick around for the money. That would be a problem. And if he finds himself in that situation, he needs to resign. He needs to resign. If all that matters to him going forward is just the salary, he needs to resign. If that's why he sticks around, if that's why he keeps doing what he's doing, he needs to resign. His gaining is dishonorable. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's not in it for the right reasons. You understand? So let me illustrate this a little bit because I want to apply it to you. I want to apply it to you. Aren't you isn't that why you came? You wanted... You wanted to have the word of God mess with you this morning, right? Isn't that why you're here? And get in there and do what it needs to do in our hearts, right? So I, first, let me try to illustrate this so you take your mind off of pastors and for a second. And there's plenty of uh, so-called ministers that are guilty of being fond of sordid gain, unfortunately, unfortunately. But let me try to illustrate it another way so you just you get the picture so then I can make application to you. There is an expectation that uh, a pastor or an elder enters into the ministry or does what he does specifically to serve others, to care for them, right? To, to look after them. It's a service type of ministry. I'm, I'm supposed to be here serving you, Right? That that's my, I want to serve God by serving you, all right? Now, certainly, um, you know, in order to do that in a, in a more robust way, it would be good if I didn't have to also work, okay? But if, if my primary thing is, and listen, uh, the reason I want to get into that ministry is because, or, or serve in that church is because I get a nice salary and good benefits. That's sort of game. You with me? 
Because there's an expectation that you get in this being willing to basically deny yourself, die a thousand deaths, and serve the body of Christ. Seriously. So, think about it with me now in a different occupation. Teachers. Right? We expect, don't we expect that teachers get into the field because they have a love for education, children, and they want to serve them and help them in their various ways that they would do that. Isn't that what, isn't that what we're hoping? Isn't that what we're expecting, teachers? But a teacher who might only be doing it for the money doesn't really care that much about the kids, just wants to get into the position so she or he can take down a check and maybe have a nice pension, what would you think about that person? Would you think well of them or not so well of them? Would you think they should get out of the field? Yes? Yes. They should get out of the field, and they would be guilty of sordid gain. They shouldn't be in the field. What that field requires, what that field calls for, is a heart that is there to serve and to help first and foremost, to give oneself away, to make sacrifices. Huh? Doctor. Doctors, is our doctor here today? Is he hiding? Oh. He just, you get lost, yeah, you're gone. I don't see you behind Ray. <laughs> uh, what do they call that oath you take? Yeah. I didn't want to say that. Uh, doctors. So do you want a doctor working on you that's only there for the money? Or one who really cares about people and is using his strengths and his education and his skills to help people, to cure them, to care for them? Do you see what I'm saying? Do you understand? A doctor, and I'm sure there's some of them, right, Chris? Who's in it only for the money is fond of sordid gain. Greedy for gain, as the ESV translates it. But it's fond of sordid gain. Pursuing dishonorable gain in a dishonorable way. I anticipate that my doctor's there really for me, but he really, he's there for himself and does what he has to do to collect the check. Police officers. I can just keep going. Police officers are there, supposedly, they're to be there. Huh? Were you, were you saying something? You're correcting me. I will take it. Oh, okay, sorry, sweetie. Um, yeah, that's my wife. There to keep me on course. Protect and serve. They are there to protect and serve. I feel like that's the role of a shepherd as well. Protect and serve. Um, our weapon of choice is a little different. You know, we have the word of God, but we're here to protect and serve. Care for our people, watch out for them, keep the boogeyman away, all this stuff, yeah? Um, but what will you think of a cop who's just there to collect that check and get that sweet retirement? What do you think of that cop? You think well of him? You think poorly of him? You think he should get out? I think he should get out. If he's there for just the check, when you're talking about such an important task as caring for people and looking to protect and serve, but he's there just to collect a check, are you with me? Do you get what I'm saying? 
I could keep going. Public officials. I don't even want to get started on that, though, because that's government. Because, hey, public officials are supposed to get into the... I mean, it's completely changed now, and honestly, many... Oh, did you say all of them? Yeah, maybe all of them, but many, let's just be gracious, many, uh, a number of them, let's be even more gracious, are guilty of sordid gain. Huh? You're there to serve, not be served. You see what I'm saying? And so they work all these sweet deals where they have incredible insurance and incredible pensions and, and, and just keep giving them self-pay pay raises. So we can see, we see it. One more, because I have to, because you'll get this one right away. A woman... <laughs> I'm sorry, she's already... Oh, boy. A woman who marries for the money. Where I was from, they call that a gold digger. A woman who marries for the money or sticks around for the money. That woman is fond of sordid gain. Right? Because... What is that woman supposed to be entering that relationship for? And why is she supposed to remain in that relationship? Why? To her, to her husband. Why? To get? To serve. To love. To give. To help. So that's why I said, let me just apply it to you this morning a little bit as you think through this. And now take that principle. Specifically, the word is related to money. He's saying, listen, if the guy, if there's any indication that the guy is fond of sort of gain, in other words, he's, he really is just in it. He, what he, in his life, you can see that he's always in it for what he can get, specifically for the money. He doesn't, he doesn't work unto the Lord in service to him and in service to others. He... He just is constantly maneuvering and looking to see what he can get. And, and so they see an opportunity in the work of ministry that the churches are generous and gracious and want to support those who would care for them, but he's not really there to care for them. He's really looking out for number one. What matters to him is how much will he get from that local community? How much can he get from them in the way of financial resources. He is fond of sordid gain. He's pretending to be a servant when really all he's looking to do is serve himself. And that man must not be a shepherd of God's people. Neither should that man be or woman be a teacher or a doctor, or a police officer, or a wife, or husband for that matter, fond of sordid gain. So I wanted to apply the principle to more than money for a second as you process. I quoted to you earlier this statement concerning 1 Peter 5, he must, there must be an eagerness to serve, or eagerness to serve should precede any consideration of personal profit. Eagerness to serve should precede 
any consideration of personal profit. So let me just say personal gain. That statement concerning an elder, which is true, absolutely true, he cannot be fond of sordid gain, he cannot be greedy for gain, he cannot be a lover of money. Uh, I want to apply it to us in different scenarios, different situations, and just have you think through that. Because basically, it's, it's someone who is only interested in what they can get out of something, not in giving to that something. They are in it for them. That's the principle. They're in it for them. They shouldn't be. They should be in it for others. Yeah? Do you, what would you think of me if I was here for the paycheck? Would you want me to stay here? You shouldn't. If that's, if that's my primary reason, I'm in it for the paycheck. Now, I need a paycheck, guys. I need a paycheck. Um, but I'm not, believe me, I'm not in it for the money. I mean it because I believe God would have me here to serve his precious people in, the, in this specific way and task. But we're taking money out of the scenario and just looking at it principally, only interested in what I can get out of it. I'm in it, you know, I'm in this for me. So, and it's disastrous. If, a, if you let a guy in, a teaching pastor as myself, if you let him in or you allow him to be appointed to the church, and he is fond of sordid gain, what, how much damage do you think that's going to do to the body? Because he's really not there for you. He'll pretend to be. He'll go through the motions, but he's really there for the money. Yeah? How much damage do you think it'll do to the body of Christ? Because he has to serve. He's called to serve. He's called to help. He, won't, he will work, he will maneuver his way, slime his way around to try to avoid sacrifice, to try to avoid self-denial, to try to avoid the cross that he's called to bear. He will try to avoid all of that because he's really there for the money. He really doesn't care about you. He is, he is there for what he can get out of it. Now, let me just apply that marriage. Are you fond of sordid gain? And specifically, I'm talking principle, not talking money, though. I'm not talking about gold digger status. I'm saying, are you in your marriage and you're there for what you can get out of it? You're there for you. You're there to be served. In a relationship that God has called both husband and wife to be serving, loving, helping, giving, sacrificing for one another. That's the expectation. That's God's requirement. But are you there for sordid gain? Because you do gain in a marriage. There is gain. Great gain, great profit. There can be in a marriage. But are you there only to get, only for you, only to be served? I mean, you think about marriages for a second and how people enter into them. It's tragic. Often they don't enter into it saying, 
I can't wait. I'm looking so forward to the opportunity to be Christ to you, husband. To love you, to care for you, to serve you, to build you up, to strengthen you. I am looking so forward to be Christ to you. Wife, right? Husband, oh wife, I'm looking so forward to giving myself completely for you, serving you, loving you, caring for you, watching out for you, because that's what God has called us to, yeah? Right? But generally, that's not exactly how people enter into marriage. Think about the things that even are said in our culture, like, you know what? He, he just makes me so happy. And we even say this, like, sweetie, are you happy? Are you happy? Because that's all that matters. If you're happy, then I'm happy to see you marry him and make sure you continue to be happy. So what happened? So I'm, he makes me happy. Who's it about? Yeah. He makes me happy. He even completes me, which is dangerous because the only one that should be completing you is Christ. Because I guarantee you, a spouse will always let you down, but Christ will not. So please don't be, have your completion be in some human being. It must be in Christ. But still, it's that idea that they're doing something for me. They're doing something for me. You even think about our language, the way we talk, right? We say, and I'm trying to get away from this because I use this language. I want to reserve the word love for better situations, like where it's really right to say it. Because I say I love ice cream, and I do. But I want to say I really like ice cream a lot. I like ice cream. But by that, what do I mean when I say I love ice cream? I love what ice cream does for me. I mean, not exactly. I, I mean, yes and no. I love the way it makes me feel. I love, I love it. I love the things in my mouth as it goes down. Just that, all of it. You know if you love ice cream, you're with me, right? It's just, it's wonderful. It's, I, but I, it's the way it makes me feel. So I've already twisted the word love, not from a biblical definition, but I love. So I get into this relationship, I love them. No, what you really mean is you love what they do for you. You love the way they make you feel. What happens when they stop doing that? Bail, which is what people do. Well, all along, you've been fond of sordid gain. You're in it for you. You're in it for you. You need to repent. I mean, the answer is not in this case, you know, if you're in a marriage, well, I'm fond of sordid gain. I guess I'm not qualified to be in a marriage anymore. No, you're in it. You're in the marriage. You need to repent of this. You need to repent and see it for what it is. It's not right. You're in it for you. That, that's what makes it shameful. Is there gain in marriage? There can be. Trust me. But the way it works is you are to give yourself away and the gain will come. I know, it sounds weird. It sounds backwards, but that's how it works. If you die, you find life. Die to yourself, you find life. Huh? That's what Christ says. You find life in him. You die to yourself, give yourself to him, you'll find life. You try to keep your life, you lose it. It's the same in marriage. Die. Give yourself away. There'll be plenty of gain, but that's not why you should be doing it. 
You should be doing it because you want to honor God, serve God. And you do that by serving your spouse, by loving them, caring for them, being for them, right? And so it goes, it keeps on going. Are you at work just for the paycheck? Now, whoa, I, I know already some of you are like, hey, you stepped over the bounds that you should not enter into. If you are there just for the paycheck, you are fond of sordid gain. Work, God gave work as a gift, and God calls you to work as unto him, unto the Lord. And in all your various tasks, wherever you might find them, there is some opportunity there to serve. Serve your employer, serve your company, serve your customer, serve, give yourself away, be there for the glory of God and the good of the other. Nah, man, you don't know my job. Maybe so, maybe it's terrible, but in any situation, so is that what I say to a marriage? If the husband or wife says, you don't know my marriage, no, yet, it doesn't matter. God knows these things, and he says, give yourself away, serve, love, regardless of how messy it is. You don't know my job. It doesn't, I don't have to know your job. God knows. He knew, and he calls you to give yourself away. To be there not just for you and what you can get out of it, but to be there to serve, to help, to build up something. Are you fond of sort of game? Church. I'll end with this one. Because I realize I'm already, you know, pushing it. Church, why are you here? I've seen my share of folks that come and go. They're just here for them. So the second you don't please them on some level, they bail. You don't give them what they want, they bail. They're not really here to serve. They're not really here to honor God by caring for brothers and sisters in Christ in the local fellowship. Why are you here? Even as you think about, well, Jeremy, I'm, I'm, I need to be fed. Yes, you do. Why? Why do you need to be fed? Why do you need to be built up in the faith? Why? so that you can go in a corner and consume it all to yourself? No, that's not the idea at all. That's not what you find in the New Testament. I saw you answering. Good job. Keep it up. Keep it up. He's new, so I just want him to know he has freedom to do that and speak out within reason. You know what I mean? Within reason. Um, why are you, 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 you should be thinking, I need to be built up so that I can help. I can be a help. I need, to, I need to be in a place where I can help others, where I can disciple others, where I can serve. And, and you know, so yes I, need, yes, I need to be fed, but my feeding is not so I can get big and, and big. <laughs> and just big, yeah. Um, overweight, I guess. I, I, it is so that I would have something to give. That I'm, I, I'm, I have my cup is running over and, and I'm, I'm able to give to others and help others. Are you guilty of sordid gain? 
my dear brother and sister in Christ, in your marriage, in your work, in your church. Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we just thank you for your word. And Father, maybe we're not. And we, we analyze and we examine and we ask the Spirit of God to work in our hearts and reveal any way that is out of line. Reveal it to us. Since, I've, as I've said before, and Father, we know it to be true. Your, your word makes it so, make, declares it to be that our hearts are deceptive. You know, we're so e- we deceive ourselves so easily. So, Father... But maybe we've done all that, we've looked, and we're not. And that's fantastic, and that's wonderful. And we, we quickly, we've examined all these areas, and we, we really are not, we're not. We don't find it to be true that we're fond of sword of gain in any way, but it doesn't mean we couldn't be in the future. Just doing it for what we get out of it, period, when we should be there to love and to honor and to serve. And So, Father, but I think... In many cases, we probably are guilty of this in some way or another. Uh, in it for what we can get out of it when, we, when it should be the opposite. There for what we can give and how we can help. So, Father, would you just do that work in us that we need so badly? We want this stuff rooted out of our lives because it's destructive. Certainly, certainly destructive for a man that would be in, responsible for caring for God's people. You certainly don't want that man fond of sort of game, but there's so many other examples where it's going to do damage as well. If we're not there and, and, and not doing what we do for the right reason, the right motivation. Father, we, as you know, Father, we, we tend to be prone to be self-centered, selfish people. But you have set us free in Christ. Help us to live in that freedom. Do your work in us, Father, we ask. Do your work in us for our own good so that we don't destroy ourselves. And, Father, for your glory so that we bring honor. We bring honor to your great name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, boys.